We've had to think differently. We've had to be creative problem solvers. And we bring all of those talents with us into the workplace. So I talk about our candidates as premium candidates because we have the same diversity of skills as everybody else. But we also have those additional things that we've learned and developed through being disabled. Hello there and welcome to Mental Health at Work, the podcast where company leaders and employees reveal the mental health stories that shaped how they think about work and themselves. This week, our host, Maite Eltero, is joined by Jane Hatton, CEO of Evenbreak, the UK's only job site run exclusively by and for disabled people. You'll hear how becoming disabled herself inspired Jane to start Even Break after a period of deep depression, and some concrete ways that companies can be truly inclusive for people living with disabilities, both physical and mental. This podcast is brought to you by Oliva, proper mental health support for the whole team. Before we start, would you like to intro yourself so we, like all the listeners, can know a little bit about you, what you do? Sure. So I'm um, Jane Hatton and I'm a disabled social entrepreneur and I founded a, a social enterprise called Evenbreak, which is aiming to really close the disability employment gap. So we only employ disabled people within Evenbreak. We really try to influence employers to see the benefits of employing disabled people and actually to make their processes much more inclusive and accessible. And also we support disabled candidates so that they can navigate their way around all the barriers that might be in front of them. I was in a lot of webinars and conferences around disability and there is a lot of times that the same question comes up, which is language around disability. Yeah. And one of the things that calls my attention is that you talk about disabled people. And I always, I guess with a, with a good intention, but not being an expert, I always thought like the word disabled people was not inclusive, right? Yeah. And so every time that someone came to me and said like disabled people, I was like, no, 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 people with disabilities. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. For me, actually, language is important. But actions are much more important. So if we use what we might call the wrong words, that's fine so long as we're doing the right things to promote inclusion. But the thing around that particular term is it's a bit regional. But in the UK, we look at two different models of disability. So there's the medical model, which says there's something wrong with disabled people and they need fixing. There's a social model which says there's nothing wrong with disabled people. It's that there are too many barriers in our society that prevent us from participating. So saying that I'm a person with a disability means that I own the disability and it's all about me. And actually, that's the medical model. So I describe myself as a disabled person because I'm disabled by the environment and the barriers that I face within us. I understand that in other countries, so USA, for example, they would say people with disabilities because it should be the person first. They're not defined by their disability. So I'm I'm fairly relaxed about it. I'm more concerned about how employers go about removing barriers that might prevent disabled people from entering their workforce in the first place or from thriving once they're in there. Thank you so much for clarifying 
one th key thing that for me resonated a lot is that you are not disabled by your medical condition, but for the barriers in our society, right? So I really love that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about a typical building and say a wheelchair user, if the building has narrow doorways and stairs, then it's going to be really difficult for that person to navigate around that building. But if that building has wider doorways and lifts, that person can get around the building just the same as, as anybody else can. So they're not disabled by the wheelchair, they're disabled by the stairs and the narrow doorways. So my, my view is that what we should be trying to do is make society accessible for all. I mean, I'm using buildings because it's an easy example, but it could be recruitment processes or the way we share information. It could be anything. If we remove the barriers, then everybody can participate and their medical condition becomes irrelevant other than to them, obviously. This makes more sense in terms like everyone can do things in order to reduce disability. Yes, absolutely. And then people become less disabled. So we get less dis the more accessibility and inclusion there is out there, the less disabled we are. So we can reduce disability. And actually, you know, that takes it right away from the medical model because it's not just doctors and scientists that can do that. It's all of us can reduce disabling barriers that might get in the way of, of people participating. Yeah. I hope after this podcast, everyone can do a little bit more in order to reduce that. Um, so you were saying that you have a spine condition. Uh, yeah. Can you walk me through a bit like what that means, how you found out? Yeah, it's it's uh, one of those um, slightly ironic tales, really. So I've always been interested in equality, diversity, fairness, and got involved in doing that full time in my 20s. So my focus was on race and gender and sexual orientation and a little bit around disability. I have a had a disabled mother and I recognise that inclusion is inclusion. So I would be talking to employers about disability from a kind of academic perspective, really, just sort of saying to them why they should be employing disabled people, what disabled people bring with them in the workplace. And then very ironically, I became one. <laughs> I became the disabled person. So I'd had back problems over the years. I had a riding accident in my early 20s and actually broke one of my vertebra, which sounds really drastic, but it wasn't. You know, I, I was young, fit, lay down for, for a while and it healed and that was fine. But we think probably what happened was that there was other damage done at that time that in combination with the aging process didn't do my spine any good at all. So when I was 44, I had incredible back pain and was diagnosed with a slip disc, which is something that lots and lots of people have, but it didn't get better. So I ended up having surgery. Um, we found out that actually a lot of my discs were not great. Um, so I had spinal surgery on my lower spine, on my neck, and it didn't get better. So, you know, for a long time, I was like, I think pretty much everybody, when something happens, you think, um, oh, well, this isn't great, is it? But it'll get better and it'll be fine. And the difference with disability is that it doesn't get better. So I spent a long time denying the fact that this wouldn't get better and, and just assuming that eventually we'll find something that will cure this or at least make it bearable. And then I came to the realization, you know, after a while that actually this isn't going to get better. This is a permanent state of affairs. And the symptoms, I suppose, were incredible acute and chronic pain 
which meant sitting, very difficult, which is a weird one. So I could lie down, I could stand up, but I couldn't sit. So that's eating meals, that's going to the theatre, that's transport. You know, it's one of those things you really take for granted until you can't do it. And um, there's a kind of uh, grieving process that I think people go through when they become disabled. And actually 83% of people who are disabled became disabled as adults. And and there is a grieving process because none of us expect it to happen. You don't grow up thinking, oh, I might be disabled one day. It just doesn't really enter your thinking. And when it does happen, you start to grieve for the life that you thought you were going to be able to live and now you can't because it's going to be very different. Some people go through that grieving process very quickly and some people take a long time. And for me, it took two years, which is ridiculous because, you know, I'd spent my most of my working life up to that point telling everybody that disabled people had just as much to contribute as non-disabled people, if not more. And I wasn't telling myself that. I was telling myself, I can't do this anymore. I can't do that anymore. I'll never be able to do that anymore. I went into a depression because I didn't see how it was possible to live life in that much pain so yeah that was a real introduction into being disabled in two ways you know physical disability but also that mental health issue you know and um, actually seeing what depression was like from the inside and it's it's not great and if you if you were to say to me now which of course never happens we never have that luxury but if someone were to say okay you can choose between having depression or chronic pain I choose the pain every time because depression is so debilitating. Was there any trigger or something that particularly happened that helped you move from denial to acceptance? Well, there are there are a number of things that that helped the the depression, which helped also with the acceptance. One of them, bizarrely, was I decided to volunteer for Samaritans, and that helped reframe the fact that oh so although I'm disabled and I used to stand up on the phone or lie down on the phone but the person on the other end of the phone didn't know that so it was irrelevant and I would feel actually I am able to contribute something you know whoever it was that had called in had got that listening ear at the end of the phone and it kind of made me realize that actually being disabled doesn't mean that you can't also offer things And it took me a long time to get to this point, but I thought, actually, I'd start to listen to what I'd been saying to others, and that applies to me too. It's not other disabled people that can all contribute and be great and add so much to society, but not me. I'm part of that too, so I can't sit, but I can lie down and I can still use a computer. I still have all the knowledge that I had before. That hasn't gone away. I still have all the connections I had before. That hasn't gone away. I'm still a mum. I remember when I came back from London, having had that horrific surgery, which just made me instantly much worse. And the night I came back, my youngest daughter came into my bed because that was the only place I could be lying down and was crying and telling me about an argument she'd had with a boyfriend. And although I was so sorry for her, it was an amazing moment because I thought, oh, I'm still mum. Just because my back is wonky he doesn't stop me being mum and doesn't stop them seeing me as mum. So I think just recognising that focusing on the things that I could still do and that I could do better in some ways now. So I have more empathy. I have more understanding. I'm not just looking at disability from a, an external perspective. 
I now have that lived experience. Yeah, it's it's like reframing the whole story, right? From having a negative narrative where you focus on all the things you can't do from now on. And then yeah. not only the things that you can still do, but also the things that you are now able to do that before absolutely. you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the many silver linings was that I started even break, which is something that would never have happened. Yeah. Because although I was happy to include disability in my work around diversity in its broadest sense, I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't have lived experience previously. And so if I was talking specifically about disability, then I'd co-produce it with disabled people, bring disabled people in with me. Whereas now I'd got that up close and personal experience yeah. of being disabled, it meant that this was an area of diversity that I really could, maybe I had something to offer to because I'd already been in that field before getting to that point. So what's the story behind even break how and when did you found it yeah so that those two stories are linked really so when I was talking to employers before I was disabled about disability in particular I'd come up with one of two reactions they'd either say why would I want to employ a disabled person they wouldn't use those exact words but you kind of knew what they meant or more positively they'd say actually we recognize that this is a pool of talent that we really should be tapping into but we don't know how and disabled people don't apply and when I spoke to disabled people and I said why aren't you applying to the second lot of people and they said because we don't know which is which every employer says we are an equal opportunities employer but our experience tells us that most aren't and I can remember thinking oh, that's bad somebody ought to do something about that and then of course I became disabled and it was very up close and personal then because this was an issue that affected me it wasn't just of a outrage that there, there was a group out there that was not being accommodated or, or welcomed. And it was also one of our shareholders. So I was in a diversity training company, traditional company beforehand. He's an employer. And he was saying to me, how do I attract disabled candidates? And so I wrote him a list of about 50 different things. He said, I just don't have time to do all that. If only there was an organization out there who could do that for us. So all of these things kind of melted together and so we came up with the idea well actually he came up with the idea of a job board that was just for disabled candidates disabled people looking for new or better work and just for those employers who were enlightened enough to see us as a pool of talent rather than a, a source of problems and I decided very early on that I wanted even break to be um, sounds a bit arrogant really but to be a bit of a role model So we only employ people with lived experience of disability and we help employers to become more inclusive and accessible, removing those disabling barriers we talked about. And also we offer support for disabled candidates so that they can have help navigating around those barriers. You know, what we'd like to do is not be needed at all. So there'd be no even break because every organisation understands the benefit of employing disabled people And they all know how to be inclusive and accessible, but also to change the narrative of disability. So it's not one of pity and it's one around talent. 
And as I said before, I think, you know, I think um, and I know that disabled people bring experience of navigating around those barriers. We've had to think differently. We've had to be creative problem solvers. And we bring all of those talents with us into the workplace. So I talk about our candidates as premium candidates because we have the same diversity of skills as everybody else. But we also have those additional things that we've learned and developed through being disabled. That's amazing. I love I love the platform. I love all the resources that are out there. So it's very it's very practical and it's it's really helpful as employer as well. I think employers are our main target because if they can remove the barriers and they don't put them there deliberately, you know, nobody thinks, oh, what are we going to do to stop the disabled people applying? It's just that they perhaps haven't looked at it through a disability lens. And I think if we can help employers to remove those barriers, then that means that they're open to so much more talent that they than they were before. What are the main barriers that you have observed in your experience that employers have towards disabled people? I think there's still very much a negative perception around disability. We're portrayed in the media and by politicians often as either benefit scroungers or lazy and work shy or superheroes like Paralympians. And actually, disabled people are rarely any of those things. You know, there are Paralympians, but they're as rare as Olympians are in the non-disabled world. You know, most of us are trying to get on with our lives. We're facing more barriers than others, but we're just doing the best we can like everybody else does. That's what we really want the perception to be, that actually if you've got, you know, a talent pool then if you're ignoring 20% of that talent, which is the number of disabled people in the work in the working age population, you're restricting yourself from talent that's out there. And so one of the things we try to do with employers is get them to think differently about how to assess people's talent. You know, actually let them show you your ta their talent rather than asking them to talk about it in an interview, for example. So I hear that one of the key steps to do as a business in order to be more inclusive and reduce barriers is education. You know, when I think of my own team within Evenbreak, the fact that we're all disabled, that brings so many, so many advantages with it. I mean, just, just to name a couple, you know, when we're looking at new software to use, which we are at the moment, for, for example, looking at learning management systems, we have two people on the team who are blind and use screen readers. So we can say to them... Have a look on this technology. Does it work for you? So we've immediately got a really good way, an authentic way of assessing technology to see whether it's accessible or not. We have neurodiverse people within the team. So, you know, people with ADHD or dyslexia or autism. And because their brains work slightly differently, you know, they'll come up with solutions I wouldn't think of in a million lifetimes because their brains work differently. You can't put a price on that. And yeah, you know, I think the, the, the benefits to organizations of having that within them with that lived experience is, well, it's incalculable. It's priceless. I, I guess it's, it's also like it teaches you a lot from not only the work itself, but like having someone, like you were saying, with different mindset, different limitations in, in terms like we sometimes have more limitations and that doesn't allow yes. us to go and think outside of the, the box and we are suddenly yeah, in front absolutely. of someone that can blow our mind with, with things we never thought about. You work with companies that are tech companies and also physical work. So it's a wide range of different kind of jobs, oh, uh, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I love that. When I started Even Break, I was worried that it might only appeal to public mm-hmm. sector organisations who I perceived were further ahead in this field or charities. And it's been absolutely the opposite. I mean, the first few years we had no charities, no public sector bodies working with us at all. Partly that was because it was 2011. So it was not long after the financial crisis. But, you know, actually, I think that a lot of private sector companies get it because they're looking at it from the talent perspective. And it ranges from finance companies to tech companies to retailers to manufacturers you know it's every sector you can think of which is fantastic because our candidates are so diverse they're looking for different jobs in different sectors and it's great that we you know we we can represent all of those and um and they all face similar problems in some ways in terms of particularly now you know with the skill shortage finding talented people to employ to do the jobs that that need to be done and what we say is actually there isn't a talent shortage. You're just looking in the wrong places. And, you know, we have sixty to 70,000 candidates on even break who are talented, looking for work, motivated. I think it's a great eye-opener because sometimes employers say like, oh, yeah, but the the kind of job that I'm offering is not suitable for people with, and actually it's really not like that, it's just you're thinking in the one way, right? Yes, absolutely. We haven't yet found a job that no disabled person can do. Obviously, there are jobs that some, we're not going to have blind people applying to be taxi drivers, for example, Um, and people self-select anyway. But I don't think there's any job that no disabled person could do. You know, so we get people saying, oh, well, you know, what about on people on building sites? You know, it's a very physical job and you couldn't have people in wheelchairs up scaffolding. And no, you couldn't. But you could have somebody with autism or dyslexia or ADHD or diabetes or mental health condition. Lots and lots of disabilities aren't physical. And on the other hand, there might be roles that need really super brains that don't require you to be, you know, physically active it's horses for courses like it is with non-disabled people everybody is different has different skill sets and it's the same for disabled people recently I saw they were asking for disabled people to apply to become astronauts I mean there just isn't a job that you couldn't find a disabled person to do can can I ask you for an example because I know the majority of our listeners come from the tech world so can you give me an example of a employer hiring um, someone with disability that it usually you would think in the tech world someone with this disability couldn't do the job and actually they can there are so many so so many examples a lot of tech companies now are proactively trying to attract neurodiverse candidates because while not every neurodiverse person is going to be good at tech I mean you know they're as unique and different as every other group of people that you could think of But there is a a very sort of logical, methodical way sometimes that somebody, say, with autism's brain works. And that's particularly suited to coding because it's repetitive, it's very precise, it's very detail-orientated. And so a lot of tech companies now come to us and say, we want some autistic candidates. So that's, that's probably an obvious example. But also, you know, people say, well, somebody who's blind couldn't. But actually, there are blind people in tech who are able to use assistive technology but also it's really important to have blind people in tech because if you're developing technology it needs to be accessible and the only way you're going to know it's accessible is like we do internally is to test it with people who need it to be 
accessible. And of course, a lot more people are working from home now. So people who perhaps find transport difficult or the building difficult to navigate around, or maybe just don't like working in a busy office, can work from home. So I think tech is, uh, you know, as a sector, is particularly well placed to be employing disabled people. An employee we hire, they had autism and they were a developer. And in our first call, I was asking them, like, how do you feel? And they were saying, actually, working in tech, it's so good because I get overwhelmed with a lot of people talking in the office. And now with COVID and async work and working from home, I get to do my work in the environment that I thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also about, um, I remember a candidate getting a job, it wasn't in tech, it was in um, in a kitchen within a school. And his manager was saying, I was a bit, you know, wary of taking on someone who was autistic. I've never managed anybody who was autistic before. And then he ended up saying, I wish all of my staff were autistic because this young man follows the protocol in terms of food hygiene absolutely to the letter every time, whether I'm watching him or not. So he knows you don't use that cloth for that bit or you don't do that with it or you wash that before. And it always gets done because he's incapable of not following the protocol. So I know there are other staff who will just cut corners and things. So I think autism is an obvious yeah. one within the tech world, but there are so many others as well. You know, there are all sorts of adjustments that companies can make, employers can make. We have within even break some people with mental health conditions or with conditions that vary throughout the year. So it might be that during the winter months, they really struggle, but during the summer months, they're fine. So what we do is an annualized hour. So they work more hours in the summer, less hours in the winter. The barriers that we think are, are insurmountable are usually pretty easy to get over. Actually, the difficult thing is finding the person with the right talent. And that's why we need to be removing these barriers so that the people that we're talking about can actually access those jobs and, and those employers can access that talent. Yeah. And also you can talk to that person and ask questions and learn from that person what they need to thrive in the work Absolutely. environment. And again, like you were saying, like emotional and mental health has a massive impact in, in the physical condition as well. So as an employer, support mental health is one of the key things in order Absolutely. to help people thrive. And I think that's the case for disabled and non-disabled people. I mean, what we say to employers is when you have a new employee start, whether or not you think or know that they're disabled, the first conversation should be, we really want you to thrive here. Tell us what we need to do. And that might be a parent needing flexible working hours. It might be someone who's doing an OU degree needing flexible working hours. It, it could be all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be around disability. But I think if people within an organization know that they are valued, know that they will be supported, then that reduces that mental health stress because we know that, oh, actually, if this happens, it'll be okay because my employer will, will look at that for me. And if you can see your employer doing that for other people, you can relax because you can think, okay, well, if the worst happens and I develop a mental health condition or I become disabled or I have a long, you know, long COVID or whatever it might be, actually, my employer is still going to value me and do what they can to keep me. And that reduces the toll on mental health 
immensely. And that helps everybody within the organisation relax, which means everybody's more productive. I mean, why wouldn't you do that as an employer? I love the idea of not making the assumption of people are needing X, Y, Z to thrive, but actually explicitly asking the question, what do you need? in order to thrive and that and that's really important I think and I think it's important for two reasons one is that a every disabled person is different so you could have 13 people with the same diagnosis but they need 13 different kinds of adjustments because they experience their condition in different ways but also because it takes the fear away from employers they don't have to be the experts exactly you know employers hiring managers don't need to know everything there is to know about disability or mental health or neurodiversity all they need to be able to do is to say to somebody tell me what you need that's that's it that's you know so there's nothing frightening about that and for me that's because I think a lot of the barrier is about people being frightened of am I going to say something wrong use the wrong word put my foot in it offend somebody actually all you need to do is say tell me what I need to do for you to thrive here Jane thank you so much it was lovely to talk to you very insightful I learned a lot and it was a pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Mental Health at Work was hosted by Maite Otero, produced by Billy Cragen, and brought to you by Oliva. Proper mental health support for the whole team. Thanks to Jane for all the amazing work she's doing at Even Break. And for reminding us that people are only as disabled as the world makes them. If you're a fan of the podcast, you can like or subscribe to Mental Health at Work in all the usual places. And if you really want to help us beat the podcast search engine algorithms, you can also leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, preferably a positive one. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.